the kids are dismissed, and thank you, kids, for being in with us. And as they're going and as the teachers are going, just want to encourage you and remind you that um, there are many places to serve here, and one of them is on Sunday morning with the children's ministry, and if you're able to help out, our teachers and our workers are really um, working hard and sacrificing each week. Many of them haven't been to the service in five or six weeks, so if you are able to help out with that or teach or just... Um, hold babies or whatever, and you can give a couple weeks, that would be wonderful. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, right at the front of our Bible, Genesis chapter 32. We're going to look at a very familiar and kind of odd story this morning that's in Scripture that surprisingly has a lot to teach us about our own lives and some of the struggles that we have in our faith and in our walk in terms of understanding how the Lord works. Now, last week, as Randy alluded, we started a series uh, called The Presence and the Power, talking about the interrelationship of God's presence and His existence with us and His time with us and, and how that works out in terms of renewal and strength and power in our own lives. And last week, we looked at Isaiah 6 about God's holy and awesome an overwhelming presence, and what that does, that it causes us to immediately be aware of our inadequacy and our worthiness and our impurity. And I think most of us understand that and conceptualize that and believe in it and agree with it, but in terms of our daily lives, it doesn't always uh, play out like it should. And sometimes, even though we're aware of the presence of God and we're aware of the holiness and the awesomeness of God, that God can do anything, that He's greater than any other God, we, we don't uh, quite fully embrace it in our faith. And we hit times and struggles and, and difficulties and we start to question what He's doing and why He's leading us to go through it, and what He's trying to teach us, and, and we don't quite grasp it in that moment, the eternal perspective that He wants to provide. I was talking to a, a mature sister in the Lord the other night And um, she had had a really uh, bad week. A close family member had had a major medical problem, and there was still some uncertainty about that. And then she had a pretty significant problem of her own. And she said to me, she said, I've never questioned the Lord before. But after this week, I've really been struggling with what He's allowed. Sometimes we wrestle that way. Sometimes we struggle that way about the ways of the Lord. We want to understand And we want to be open to His leading and and even to His discipline, even though it's hard for us and we don't particularly enjoy the discipline of the Lord. We want to be open to it and we want to trust Him and and move forward with Him. But we don't quite know how. Maybe it's a time of sadness and difficulty and stress and we just want to know, Lord, why are You allowing this trial? I know You say it's for my benefit and so I'll mature and become complete, but why are You allowing it? Or times when we need very clear direction and we want the Lord to to make it clear. What are you doing? How are you leading? What what am I supposed to do? What's my role in this? Or maybe like Jacob, as we're going to study this morning, there's there's times of relational conflict and sadness. We want healing and reconciliation, but it's just not taking place. And we don't know why the Lord doesn't intervene and make that better. Or maybe it's... Uh, times when we were concerned and fearful and we say, Lord, I just need your, your strength. I need you to remind me that you care and that you're present and I have your promises and you'll, you'll help me. Whatever it is, in those circumstances, it's time when we need the presence of the Lord to be near us. We want comfort and, and to be taught and directed and, and to have our faith, faith bolstered. And we know that the devil moves in at those times and he and he accuses and he distracts and he disheartens and he, and he says, you're not worth God's care and, and, and you don't know how to do it and your faith's not strong enough and people are condemning you. Whatever the case may be, and we need him, God to strengthen us and, and lift us up on that rock that we sung about. Now in those circumstances, we, we have the need more than anything else for the presence of God. But sometimes the reason for those difficulties and the reason for those struggles is of our own doing. There are times when our actions and our choices and our decisions 
have not been about seeking the Lord and following the Lord, but they've been for selfishness or for some kind of indulgence of our own or, or we've tried to grab control, which is the ultimate oxymoron in our lives, that we grab control of our life. We have no control of our lives. Either we serve the devil or we serve the Lord. There are only two choices. Any thoughts that the devil plants in our head of, of control of our lives and I'm going to grasp, that's, that's a farce. So sometimes we say, well, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to use my skill and my ability and my smarts to, to make it happen. That's what Jacob did. Jacob many times throughout Scripture makes the wrong choice because he thinks he's smart enough. And even from the start of his life, things were a little bit off. As he's coming out of the birth canal with his twin Esau, he grabs Esau's heel, a kind of a sign of his jealous ambition that's going to rule his life, that he doesn't want to be second, he wants to be first. And even in that picture that we have from Scripture, he even before he takes his first breath, we see the lack of contentment. We see him having this desire to have something different. And that's how it plays out. And it's not playing out in a good way. He strives for more. And he's usually not concerned about how he's going to get what he wants. Now to this point, Genesis chapter 32, that's our text today. To this point, Jacob's life has been a real mix of good and mostly bad decisions. And he has not lived up to the expectations and the legacy of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. In fact, at this point, Genesis 32, he's really quite a bit of an underachiever personally and spiritually. We know that God had given a covenant to Abraham. We know that God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a great nation and I'm going to bless you and be your God. Isaac, the son of the promise, who we had the conflict with Ishmael that we talked about last week from the study of Egypt. Isaac was the son of the promise and he obeyed the Lord and followed the Lord and he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now Jacob was not supposed to be the one that had the blessing. Esau was the firstborn. But Jacob early on sets his heart to taking that blessing and taking that favor. And he deceives his father in his old age with his mother's help. And he dresses like his hairy brother and pours the kind of the scent that Esau of being a man of the field. And he goes in and, and Isaac doesn't quite believe it, but he's blind and he doesn't get it. And his wife helps deceive him and he puts the blessing on Jacob. And Esau understandably is annoyed and irritated and saddened. And then Jacob steals the birthright because Esau comes in one day and he's hungry. And Jacob says, well, I made some stew. And if you're really wanting it, this is his brother, I'll, I'll sell it to you. Esau says, I'm famished. Just give me anything. He says, well, I'll tell you what, let's trade it for your birthright. And he steals the birthright from Esau. And it says in Genesis 27 that Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And he said to himself, I will kill my brother Jacob. That's a shocker, right? Nobody saw that one coming. He steals everything. He deceives. He lies. He corrupts what should have been honorable. And he takes it. And Esau is so ticked off that he says, I'm going to kill Jacob. So Isaac, in his old age, says, Jacob, you need to get out of here. And he sends him to Padan Aram. I know this is just what you came for this morning, a history lesson on Jacob, right? But this is important background. Isaac says, go 300 miles north up to what is now Syria and stay with your uncle Laban until Esau calms down a little bit. So Isaac, uh, Jacob goes all the way up and he meets his uncle. And as soon as he sees his uncle's daughter, Rachel, he is madly in love. And he determines that Rachel is the person for him. And it seems that God ordains that, but Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine because when it comes to the wedding, the bride's face is veiled, and as soon as it's uncovered and they're pronounced husband and wife, he realizes that it's his Jacob, Rachel's sister, Leah. So Laban had deceived him and tricked him 
And Jacob experienced what it was like. So after seven years of labor, he gets Leah, not what he expected. And then he goes a week, he has his honeymoon with Leah, and then Laban says, you can now marry Rachel, but you're going to have to work another seven years for me. So there's a mess here. There's a problem. Everything is not right. Finally, Jacob decides he's going back to Canaan, and he sneaks off with his wives. And Laban pursues him and tries to hunt him down, but eventually they work it out. It's just, it's just kind of yucky. It's just not what you would expect for a patriarch of Israel and a patriarch of the faith. Finally, it comes to the place where God now is going to work in a profound way. And this is the start of chapter 32. We're not going to read it. Just look at it. Jacob comes to a place called Mahanim. Mahanim. Just on the east side of the Jordan River. If you would put up that map, please. Let me give you a little bit of historical perspective here. You can see right here, my handy dandy little laser here. This is Mahanam, right here at the Jabbok River. You see in the, if you can see that in the back, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. This is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's right about there. So Mahanam is right there. And he settles in there. Would you go to the next, please? This is what the area looks like. This is where right here in the foreground, this is Mahanam. This is where Jacob decides that he's going to try to make peace with Esau. And he sends some people out to say, look, I want everything to be okay. Esau is ticked. We'll talk about that in a second. And Jacob divides his, his flocks and his tribes here so he'll be a little bit safe. Would you go to the next one, please? This is what it would have looked like for them. They were Bedouins. They lived in tents. So this is just a general picture. You see how kind of brown and stark that is. There aren't big trees and lavish streams and uh, there isn't a Target or a Walmart anywhere in sight. This is just out in the wilderness and it's very harsh and dry and hot. Uh, not any place you would want to spend any amount of time in. Uh, would you go to the next one? I think I still want that. Okay, let's, let's uh, stop there. Just keep that up on the screen for a minute. So he's at Mahanam. Oh, actually, I will give you this one. This is the valley, actually, that Jacob walked through. In fact, um, scholars say that he walked right here on the right side. So it, Jacob had to come down through this valley. This is the Valley of Yabok. The Valley of Yabok. And Jacob comes down here to make peace with Esau and to make things right in his life. Just keep that up for a minute so, so you can get the perspective of what this looks like. Because I think it's always better when you can see it and understand it. Now, as I said, Jacob sends a message to Esau. And he says, look. I know I deceived you. I know I messed our relationship up. But, but I want to try to make some things better. The only message that comes back from Esau is not an actual verbal message. The messengers come back and say, Esau's coming to meet you and he's got 400 guys with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound too reassuring, does it? That sounds like mm, there's going to be a rumble and I'm not going to do very well. Esau's still holding a grudge, apparently, and Esau's, why, why does he need 400 guys? You can imagine the thoughts that are spinning in Jacob's head. Why is he bringing 400 people with him? And he panics, and he worries, and he says, all right, we're going to divide up. At least if Esau comes and kills me, I'll only lose half my people. That's positive thinking, right? That's really going on your face and seeking the Lord. But that's not the way Jacob did things. Jacob didn't rush to the Lord and seek the Lord. He, he always tried to figure it out through his own cunning. But this one time, after he decides that he's going to kind of make it up on his own, and he sends his wife and kids across the river, we'll look at that in a second. This one time, you see it here in verse um, 8, he calls on the Lord. But his prayer is odd. He says, well, Lord, you, you, you told me to come here, and you said you would prosper me. Not exactly the deep, dependent prayer of humility, is it? And yet there's the first little glimpse because his whole life he's been scheming and plotting and lying and it's his nature to kind of think his way out of problems rather than seek the Lord. But for the first time, he seems to be getting it. Now granted, 
it's in a situation where he feels like his life is being threatened and he senses that Esau is about to carry out his vendetta against him, but at least he calls on the Lord. It's the first indication in Jacob's life that he's really starting to get it and he appeals to God's covenant and he says, God, I'm unworthy. It's the best thing he's said so far. God, I'm unworthy. I recognize that I have no worth before you, the holy God. It's shades of last week, Isaiah 6. And finally, his heart starts to get right with God, and he starts to sense, God, I need your help. I need you to do something. So if you go to the next picture, he sends his wife and his kids across the river. Two wives, 11 kids. He sends them across the river, and he stays on the other side of the river alone, and night falls. Now this is going to be the defining moment of his life. Even though he's going to experience things far greater, and he's going to have 12 sons, and they're going to become the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's going to have Joseph, and all that stuff that we know about Scripture. I believe this moment is the defining moment of his life, because there's a key spiritual reshaping that needs to take place in his life. God is going to change his name, we'll read in a couple minutes, to Israel. But Jacob cannot become Israel with all that that entails. He can't become a greater man of God unless first this personal change happens. And God is going to make sure that it does happen. Now let's draw some application here in the start of the message or middle of the message, whatever it is. This is true for every believer. We cannot become who God wants us to be and God has saved us to be unless first we go through that refining process of having our character transformed. It happens when we're saved. We know from Romans 6, 7, and 8 that when God saves us, He gives us a new nature. He changes us from unrighteousness to righteousness. He puts His own presence within us. He says, you're no longer controlled by sin. You're now controlled by righteousness. I'll give you a new heart and a new mind, and you'll be different. We know that that happens. But since we continue to sin as we are becoming more and more like Christ every day, there are still going to be areas of our life that need substantial correction and need substantial change. And what's fascinating about that is many times to create that change, God does things in a very, what seems to us, a very unusual way to get our attention. Jacob had really been, in many ways, very subtly and quietly resistant to the work of the Lord. So if God just comes to him at this point after he's prayed and says, well, Jacob, this is what you're supposed to do, because he's so cunning and, and devious and analytical, he might twist the word of the Lord and, and kind of put that to his own advantage. You get what I'm saying? He, he might take that and say, well, here's what God says, but here's what I think. I'm going to adapt the word of the Lord. So God, for some reason, doesn't choose to just say, well, I'll just teach you. Instead, he chooses a most unusual way to get the message across to Jacob. Let's read it. That's a long introduction but we needed to set it up. Look at verse 24. Actually, start in 23. He took them and sent them across the stream. That's his wife and his maids and his kids. And he sent across whatever he had. So it's just him. He has no possessions. He has no family, no friends, no support. Verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone. This is not the next thing you would expect to read. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Jacob said, uh, excuse me, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, 
yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of his hip. Very strange passage. In fact, it even reads a little choppy. The transitions aren't what you'd expect. But there's a lot here that God is teaching us about the way that he works. Jacob sends everybody across the stream, and it's just him. And the next phrase is odd. And a man wrestled with him all night. You're like, who is this man? And where did he come from? And I thought Jacob was alone. And what's the point of the wrestling match? And why all night? I mean, I don't know about you, but my head just starts to fill with questions. What is clearly obvious from the first couple verses that we read is that for the first time, Jacob finds himself at a disadvantage. He can't manipulate people. He can't manipulate the circumstances. And he can't win. Because he's wrestling with a man who's not just a man. In fact, the text is pretty clear that this is someone from heaven. Verse 28 says that he strived with God. The word means to contend with or exert yourself against. And in verse 30, Jacob even says, I met God face to face. So there seems to be no doubt that the presence of God is meeting with Jacob. And I want you to notice, too, that the wrestling went on all night. Neither one prevailed. Now, this is an outward struggle with deep spiritual internal implications. But before we get to that, before we learn what it means and how it applies to us, if this is a really a manifestation of the Lord, and we're talking about the presence of God and the power of God, why would God do this? I mean, we have to ask that question in the text. Any good study of the Bible, you ask the W questions. Who, what, where, when, and why? Why does God do this? Why does God choose this method? Why does he apparently come down as a man and wrestle with Jacob at night? We, we might say if we're cynical, doesn't God have better things to do? Uh, why, why this method? Well, one thing we draw from it, on the positive, is that this is how much God cares about us. This is how much God cares about you and me. We know about the incarnation. We know about Christ coming and being born as a baby and living and dying and rising. We know all that. But listen, God cares about us so intimately that even in the time when we're sitting by a river, alone, wondering what comes next, his presence is there. When Elijah was by himself, nobody was worshiping God, and there was drought in the land, God says, go to the brook Cherith, and I will feed you, and the ravens come and bring him food. When Elijah's in the cave, and he's depressed and despondent and wants to die, God comes in a storm, and there's a still small voice, and he says, I'm here, why are you here? Many times throughout our lives, the presence of God is there and we may not even sense it. Rather than resenting that God brings us into difficulty and trial and allows us to be at many times alone with our thoughts, instead we should realize that that proves that he loves us and really wants to teach us and we shouldn't miss it. Then there's a second thought. The all-night struggle tells us a lot about Jacob's attitude in his heart. And it tells us a lot about the heart of man in general. See, I didn't get this. I've studied this passage before, but there was a new revelation to me this week that wrestling with God was really what Jacob had done all his life. God had already given him a vision of heaven. God had showed him this great ladder that descended, ascended all the way up from the earth into the sky, and there were angels on every side. And as Jacob's dreaming, he sees this vision of heaven. And that vision was given to him uh, several chapters before to reassure him of God's presence and reassure him of God's love and of the covenant that he had made that God was going to use him. In that vision, like Isaiah 6, God's making a clear statement. Your help comes from me. The one who made heaven and earth, 
the one who has given a promise to your grandfather, the one who has covenanted with him that there will be a great nation. Jacob, get it. I'm with you. I'll help you. I've promised you. Now you need to make sure you know your place before me. But here's Jacob's problem. His whole life had been about self-sufficiency. His whole life had been about his control. Maybe that describes you this morning. I don't know all of you. Maybe you've really struggled with this your whole life. I'm about my own way. Sinatra sang it, didn't he? I did it my way. Well, he sure did. He didn't honor the Lord. And maybe that describes us in many ways, even as believers. Maybe that's still the conflict in our heart that we're struggling because we want control and we're butting up against God's work and God's plan and God's guidance. And the Bible tells us, yield to the Holy Spirit. We're saying, mm, sometimes, when I feel like it, when it's comfortable for me, when I want to. Jacob, throughout his life, had been about his control. He had never been fully persuaded to yield himself to the Lord, even though God said, I have big plans for you. His heart was never quite right. Why does the battle take all night? Certainly not because God is weak. It's certainly not because God is not able to contend with man. Like, it's a great struggle between God and us, and, and it's questionable who's going to win. That's, that's not the case here. I believe it's because the determination and resistance of self and of will is that strong. Jacob refuses to yield. Listen now, it's very important. Jacob refuses to yield. He refuses to give. He obviously knows that this is not just some guy that's wandering by the river Yabok. Oh, oh, hi, who are you? Let's wrestle. I mean, is that a good opening line for anybody? I'm despondent. My brother's going to try to kill me. I just sent my family across the river. I divided my people up into two. 400 guys are coming, and there's a price on my head. So, hi, stranger. Let's have a wrestling match all night. He obviously knows that this is something different, that this is someone different. And as he begins to wrestle with this man, he struggles and he fights and he doesn't give in because that's a picture of the strength of his will. And at the end of the battle, this man, the Lord, touches Jacob's hip and he dislocates his socket. Imagine the power of God if by just a simple touch, the hip goes out of joint and he, oh, and he falls and he can't get up because not only is it just impaired, but it's out of joint. If God can do that with a simple touch, think about what he could have done if he had really wanted to damage him. See, the Lord never disciplines us the way he could. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Right? Say amen to that. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. God isn't vengeful and angry every single time that we do something that displeases him. He has every right to be, and he can be at times, but he's gracious and compassionate, and he's slow to anger, and he's rich in love. He doesn't give us what we deserve. So this night-long struggle and resistance and push and rebellion and, and, and fighting and, and lack of yielding, God finally, at the end of the time, says, boom, let me just remind you who's God. But I'm not dealing with you the way that I should. Because I have plans for you. Listen, if you're in rebellion this morning, I say this as your friend, if you're in rebellion this morning, deal with it before God decides to. He's patient and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love, but he's not going to wait forever. And it's far better for us to be self-disciplined and to bring that before him and repent than for him to get involved because when he gets involved, it's going to be painful. And we can't come back and say, well, that's not fair. God says, I give you plenty of opportunity to repent. You know better. Right? That's, that's the right word, right? So God says... You want to struggle with me all night? Fine. Let me show you who's in charge. 
See, for Jacob, it wasn't the nature of the injury. It was what the injury represented. All his life, he had strategized and been clever and manipulated. And God undid that all in a moment. All the confidence he had in himself, now he just, he was crippled and, and he was humbled. And, and it wasn't, he couldn't fight anymore. Any wrestler knows that all the strength comes from your legs. But he couldn't do that anymore. He couldn't push off. By the end of the night, he's no match for the power and authority of God. This is such an important lesson that we need to see this morning. If you don't write down much, you need to write down this concept. Because God will continually reinforce it if we don't choose to yield and learn from it. He'll teach us in ways that will injure us, so to speak, in the short term, but we'll never forget it. Apparently, this injury was permanent. Jacob hobbles away, and every time he limped, it was a reminder you need to submit yourself to the authority and the power of God. Everything you relied on, everything that got you to that place is worthless unless it's surrendered. And it has to not just be a grudging yieldness. Sometimes we yield to God and we say, all right already. Ever said that to the Lord? All right, I'll yield. We don't want to admit it, but I will admit it. I've said that to the Lord. All right, enough. Like a sassy 14-year-old, we speak to the Lord. All right, get off my back. God says, oh, that's not the kind of yieldedness I want. I want you to say, yes, Lord, that makes sense. Yes, Lord, that's right because you're God. Yes, Lord, I will do that because I'm willing to follow you in whatever you want me to do. How many times have you seen the Lord touch certain areas of our life where you needed that concept? You've never forgotten them, have you? They stand out in your mind like they happened yesterday, and the strangest thing will trigger our memories. But that happened, didn't it? We learned that the Lord said, you need to submit to me. Listen, you and I need to be weakened every day. Think about that sentence. You and I need to be weakened every day from the influence and the power of self. We quote it all the time, but there is a reason why Jesus said, die to self daily. Because even though we cannot ultimately withstand or thwart God's ultimate authority, we certainly can hinder and impede his purpose toward us by resisting it. Up until this moment, Jacob has never been in the center of God's will. Even though God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though his grandfather had inherited the land by the covenant of God. Even though his father had been anointed the son of the promise. Now God says to Jacob, I will prosper you and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea. How in the world is that going to happen if Jacob is resistant and self-reliant? And turn the question to us. How is God going to bless us and work in our life and abundantly use us for his glory if we're constantly standing there with our spiritual arms crossed saying, well, I, I kind of defy you to do that and I'm not really ready. The Lord brings his presence down. The location is not an accident. The name of the stream is Yabak. The word means emptying. Anybody think that's a coincidence? The place of emptying. As Jacob is at the place of emptying, the presence of God comes down and exerts his power over Jacob in every way. So his character will move from self-reliant to broken. At Yabok, he empties Jacob of self. What are the Yabaks in your life? What are the places where God has come down and emptied you? What are the places where God has dislocated your will? Where he says, you need to know it's not by might and not by power, but by, tell me, my spirit. Not you, Rhodes. Not what you think's best. Not what you want. Not your power. Not your strength. That's all a farce. It's all about my spirit. And as we've come to those places of Yabok, have we actually learned? Are we actually living in them? Certainly we would think that wrestling with the Lord would get our attention. But listen, there are many times in my own life 
and in your life where we've wrestled with God. And we've been in those circumstances and God has said, I want to teach you. I would encourage you, even as I talk, write some of those down in your notes. Write them in your Bible. Whatever the case may be, be specific. I would write Dallas 1987 where God challenged me and confronted me when I was alone and said, you are going to trust me. This is not an option. If you're going to serve me, you're going to trust me because the two go hand in hand. I can remember it as specifically as if it happened last night. We need to remember those times. Don't avoid them. Don't forget them. God constantly says, remember. So write them down. Put them in the margin. This is the place where God met me. Listen, maybe you're in the middle of one right now. Maybe God's challenging your self-reliance even this morning and it's painful that God is stirring you into a deeper level of trust and submission. Dependence only comes from the loss of self-reliance. Dependence only comes from the loss of self-reliance. So if faith is going to take hold in our lives and God says that's what I want most because without faith, it is absolutely impossible for me to be pleased. So for faith to take hold in our lives, we have to go through those times, but we have to stop fighting Him. The only way we win is to lose. You hear that? The only way to win the only way to experience victory is to lose. Now look back at the passage because the break between verse 25 and 26 is the moment where Jacob's life changes forever. The change that takes place in him right here will impact his descendants. It will impact his relationship with his estranged brother. It will determine his future, his identity, his mindset, and his reputation forever. Even his name is going to be changed. In ancient times, when you gave a name, it symbolized possession, and it was insight into the character. Jacob's character is changed because he has been transformed. God gives him a new reality. And God says, you're no longer going to be Jacob because the word means deceiver. He says, you're no longer going to be Jacob. Now you're going to be Israel. Why did God choose the name Israel? Israel means God prevails. Jacob, all your life, it's been about deception. All your life, it's about cleverness and cunning and trying to get your way, and manipulating, and you stole the blessing, and you stole the birthright. Even from your birth, you were grabbing Esau's heel. You had so much ambition. But now, Jacob, I'm changing you. Now you are Israel. Now, for the rest of your life, you will be God prevails. His new name is at the center of history. His new name is at the center of the news even today. Israel's not just the name. It is a covenant, blessing, and promise, and fulfillment to God's people. And really, in a way, every one of us today who's a believer is in Israel. God has prevailed over sin and death, and we're living proof, listen, that God prevails. You and I are Israel. Because our life is not what it used to be. Our life is different. And God has prevailed. And amen to that. But notice the second part of the story, because it's just as important. As daybreak comes, the man, the Lord, asks Jacob to let him go. What does that mean? I believe somewhere in the middle of the night, it went from the struggle of resistance to the struggle of clinging. And no longer is he fighting against. Now he's holding on to. He's not running from the battle. He's clinging to the Lord. For the first time, he has it right. 
And he gets that the enemy's not Esau. And the enemy's not this man. The enemy's himself. For so long, it's been about him. For so long, it's been about his way and his struggle and his selfish, carnal nature has dictated how he thinks and lives. But during the night, he got the self beaten out of him. And for the first time, he gets it. And as the sun comes up, he sees the light. Always before, he had been willing to let go of God. But now that he's in the presence of God, he realizes it's what a blessing it is. And in losing, he recognizes this is where true victory takes place. This is where it happens. There's nothing better than to abide in the Lord and to experience His power. So as the Lord says, time for me to go, Jacob says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not leaving until you bless me. Because something happened overnight. Something happened as we struggled. I started resisting and fighting and being all cunning, but something happened and I realized that I don't want you to go. See, this is not an arrogant, presumptive demand. You're not going anywhere. That's not that. It's don't leave me without blessing me. Oh, believer, this is the heart the Lord wants in us. The persistence of abiding and the perseverance of faith and the confidence of dependence of realizing there is no greater place to be than when we're in the presence of the Lord and we're just holding on to Him. Right? Right? That's, that's true, right? I'm not speaking lies up here. There's no greater place. Now, at the risk of taking too much of your time, look at one last thought and we'll pray. When Israel asks the man's name, he doesn't tell him. Now, the cynic would say, well, see, God doesn't answer prayer. And God doesn't respond when we ask him for clarity. It's just the opposite. The Lord asks a question in return. Why are you asking my name? Why do you want to know who I am? See, the point is, Jacob already knows who he is. Jacob already knows that he's been in the presence of the Lord because he says, I've wrestled face to face with God. So for some reason, he asks the name, but the Lord says, you don't need my name. You've known all along who I am. I don't need to validate myself right now to prove that I'm worthy. I believe when God gets this question from us, he says, how long have you known me? God, why are you doing this? Lord, what, are, what do you want? Why this trial? And God says, how long have you known me? I got saved in June of 1974. I'm coming up on how many years? Is it 11? 37 years this summer of knowing the Lord. I think I'm past the point where I should be saying, Lord, why are you doing this? Because God says, you've known me for 37 years. You really have to ask that question? You don't know about my character yet? You don't know about the plans I have for you that are far above you can imagine. You don't know about my redemption and my grace and my mercy and my help and my provision and my sufficiency and my faithfulness. You don't know about all those things, Paul. You still want to say, why? Really? He says to Israel, you don't need to know my name. You know who I am. That's why the text is intentionally ambiguous, it was a man. Well, we all know who this is. This is the presence of the Lord. Look at the last thought. (coughs) It says in verse 29, but he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. How many times in our lives can we look back and say, the Lord blessed me there. I rescued me from sin. 1974, Charlotte, North Carolina. He rescued me from sin. And he delivered me from that relationship that was so damaging 
and he gave me other relationships that spiritually strengthened me. And he brought me through that trial and helped me endure. And he blessed me on the other side. And he brought me to that service. I remember the first time I went to that service. And oh, I was so inspired. And God spoke to me. Think of all the instances in your life where there's no other explanation than the Lord blessed me. Oh, so many times we can't even count. For Jacob, this was the ultimate blessing. And he knew why. Because he had seen the Lord. He had been in the presence of the Lord and experienced the power of change. And he names the place Penuel. The word means two things. The face of God and facing God. Show me that. If you got that one more slide, not to interrupt the thought, but show me. This is Penuel. Right there. On that mountain, that's where Jacob wrestled with God. And he said, I've seen the face of God, but I'm also facing God. Listen, you and I, we stand before the face of God every day. As believers, his Holy Spirit indwells us. He's our paraclete. He walks beside us and with us. And he teaches and convicts and guides and blesses us but to make sure that our heart is right. Listen now, last thought. To make sure that our heart is right and that we're not wrestling and struggling against Him. Not only do we need to be at Penuel before the face of God, but we also need to stand at Penuel facing God. We can be in the presence of God, but can be defiant. Jacob had done it many times. Now it's intentional. He says, I'm facing the Lord. God's come face to face with me, but now I'm facing him. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix them now. Don't be distracted. Don't look around. What's my cell say? I was at somewhere the other day. Every single person on their cell. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured hardship. And the passage says, knowing this, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. No matter what your struggle is this morning, no matter what your trial and difficulty, face the Lord, because at Penuel, you will never, ever be disappointed. And you will never find him insufficient. He'll bless you and help you and meet you. Let's bow our heads just for a minute. I'm going to ask you to be very, very still. Don't close your Bibles. Don't zip them up. Don't do anything. Don't let your heart be distracted now. I know I've preached long. But listen, some of you are in situations this morning that are discouraging you. You're despondent. You're losing heart. You're wrestling with your faith. And you need reassurance from the Lord. I pray the study's been for you. I pray the Lord has spoken directly to you despite my weakness. And you will realize that God is touching your life and it may seem painful and it may make you limp for a while, but he's doing it to refine and shape your character. He wants you not only to come face to face with him, but he wants you now to intentionally face him and fix your eyes on Jesus because he wants to perfect your faith. Whatever it is that you need to submit this morning, whatever it is that you're wrestling with God about that you need to now put before him, you need to do that right now. Because if you walk out and it's still unresolved, God at some point is going to get involved. Maybe he already has. He's not going to be ignored. He's not going to be mocked. He's the Lord. So I want to give you just a moment in the silence of this room just to take that before the Lord. I don't know what it is. I know what it is in my own life. Just submit it to him right now.
Lord, we stand face to face with you every day because your spirit indwells us as believers. There's no escaping your eyes. They run to and fro looking around the world seeking those whose heart is inclined to you. You never miss a thought that we think. You never miss a word that we speak. You never miss an action that we commit. But you do so because you love us and you care about us. And you want us to be like Christ. Lord, I don't know what my brothers and sisters are dealing with this morning. I do know that you've brought us a challenging word to stop fighting and stop wrestling and start yielding. It is only then where the transformation of our character will take place and you will accomplish the great and wonderful things that you have planned for us in a powerful way. Lord, we ask for your presence to be renewed in our life and we ask that you would convict us and guide us and encourage us to stand facing you every minute of every day. There are so many distractions, so many things that would dissuade us, but Lord, you are good and you're faithful and you're holy and you're true. So help us. We will not listen to the voice of the enemy who will lie and accuse and say anything he can to get us away from you. May we stand at Penuel approved as workmen that are not ashamed. We thank you and praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.